Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 197 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Shenandoah Shafalo, the author of A Garbage Bag Suitcase, a memoir, a story of a woman's turbulent childhood navigating the foster care system. Ms. Shafalo is also the foster care advocate and the co-owner of Good Harbor Institute in Traverse City, Michigan. Ms. Shafalo, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me on today. Great. You're welcome. Glad to have you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Uh, So what I'm currently working on is actually reimagining the entire child welfare system. Uh, This is a, a project I got asked to come to the table with by a group out of Minnesota, the ALEA Initiative. And 100 people around the country have been asked to come together to collaborate to, to reimagine the entire child welfare system. And that's a project that I'm passionate about, this idea of moving just some conversations about things that need to change uh, within our communities and society into an action plan of how we can actually do that for implementation pers- per- perspective as well as a sustainability perspective and how we can change outcomes for the half a million kids in the foster care system. So, yeah, so as you mentioned, of the foster care system, um, and 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 through that you have quite a powerful story about which uh, you've written in uh, your memoir about your experiences with the foster care system. I'd like to get to the the advocacy side and what you're doing with Good Harbor Mm -hmm. Institute and what you're doing with this uh, collaborative work group to try to reform uh, child welfare across the United States. But perhaps we can bring our listeners back to the beginning um, where you were in an uncomfortable situation with drug and alcohol addicted parents moving in the middle of the night, and then you were dropped off at your grandma's retirement home at the age of 13. Can we start right there and just provide our listeners with some background about your personal experiences with foster care and and, and, of course, out of that has arisen your, your passion for reforming the system. Yeah, I actually self-reported myself to care at the age of 13. Um, as you said, I had a pretty nomadic childhood up until that time, uh, attending about 35 schools over the course of that time across this nation. Uh, end up at a retirement home that my grandmother is living in. My mother disappears for what turns out to be the last time in my life. And they're threatening to kick my grandmother out of her retirement living because she's not allowed to have residence there. Um, And I'm afraid she's going to become homeless. She's elderly. She has illnesses. And so I self-report myself to the foster care system. In my 13-year-old brain, of course, right, because 13-year-olds know everything, Jordan, just ask them. Um, (laughs) I think that this is going to be the answer to my prayers and that somehow this is going to be my Disney happily ever after, right? I'm going to get parents who are craving to have children, parents who have been through extensive training within the state. This is what I think. And people who are just looking to really have a child to raise, you know, I'll finally have someone who comes to parent-teacher conferences, who comes to my dance recitals. That's what I think. Uh, It turns out that that's not the case, that 13-year-old was incorrect, 
and I'm shuttled between multiple homes. Uh, it's hard to find continued stability. Again, I'm changing schools multiple times. Um, school for me ends up being a place where I find a lot of refuge. I do really well in school, academically speaking. Socially, I have lots of issues. A teacher takes interest in me in my senior year of high school when I'm getting ready to age out. I was actually turning 18 in the middle of my senior year of high school, which for listeners who don't know means I'm going to become homeless at midnight of my 18th birthday. Um, I'm trying to scramble to make arrangements for that. And a teacher so asked me. at that time, so yeah. just, to, just to interject right there. So you have foster care parents who receive a financial incentive to care for you as a child but these individuals would kick you out on your 18th birthday because they legally have no longer a requirement to take care of you. They wouldn't just continue to, 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 That's con correct. to be a family. That's correct. And in some States in this country, they actually have to, they're not allowed to keep the kids. There's actually laws that prevent them from, even if they wanted to keep you, they can't. Uh, in my case, there wasn't a law preventing that, but yeah, you're actually at 18 done because they're no longer receiving assistance. In my case, in scrambling, because all I'm frankly trying to do in that survival mode is graduate high school. I don't know anyone who's graduated high school. I'm just trying to graduate high school. And I convinced my foster parents to allow me to stay if I pay them the funds they had been receiving from the state. So I am working a part-time job, and that part-time job, every penny I'm making from that job is going to ensure that I can have a place to stay from December of my senior year of high school until I can graduate that following May. So that's my plan to not become homeless. Of course, I, I'm only postponing the inevitable, but it buys me time to at least get that high school diploma. A lot of kids will never get the diploma because they become homeless. And of course, once they become homeless, you know, attending school isn't really a priority. And of course, in addition to becoming homeless, you have lots of other complications where half of all girls in foster care under the age uh, 18 and under uh, do become pregnant while in foster care, and three out of four former foster care uh, children end up in prison, and and even and, and it just you have lots of other social economic yeah, challenges I, facing I, I individuals. Think, yeah, I think the statistic is something like 80% of girls who age out of the foster care system will be pregnant by 19 and a half. Uh, mm -hmm. Over half of the boys who age out of the system will have a felony conviction be before 19 and a half. I mean, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable. When we look at the prison system, we know somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of people currently in prison in the United States are former foster youth. You know, these things aren't coincidental. Um, and it's the reason I decided to share my story, because frankly, after I turned 18, I told myself that I would never share my story, that I never wanted somebody to know that I was in foster care because I had been treated poorly. Uh, people, you know, when I went to my counselor's office, he said, people like me don't go to college. People like me learn to serve people like him. You know, there were those and people who still feel that, you know, foster kids have done something wrong, that somehow they're bad kids or bad people because nobody can love them and they're difficult and they come from these traumatic backgrounds and it makes them behave in these ways. You know, there's, we're not holding out high aspirations for kids in care and they live up to those low expectations, right, that we set forth. And so why, sorry, yeah, I just was going to ask, why were you able to succeed and overcome those odds when only you're able to go on and graduate from college when only 1% 
of all foster care children actually end up enrolling in and graduating from a four-year degree program. What is it that sets you apart? How were you able to overcome the odds? Well, this is a, this is where it gets interesting because brain science is advancing so quickly that, you know, we have the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, which shows us and helps us understand what happens for kids living in traumatic situations, how that actually impacts the brain, how that changes them on a cellular level. And the outcomes are as terrible as one might imagine. The good news is, is that Harvard spent a lot of time doing a study on resilience, and they laid out basically three ways in which we can help people recover from these traumas. Uh, one, supportive adult, right? One stable, supportive adult. It doesn't have to be the same person throughout a child's life, but these sort of random people that can help and give support at crucial times can make a difference. Connection to community uh, through religious sex, through teens, that's a way in which people can grow and move. Thirdly, being able to master a skill in something is a way that people can move out of their trauma brains and heal their past traumatic experiences. This can happen at any age, by the way. It doesn't always have to happen as a child. I think I was lucky that I had some adults in my life at the right time, at the right moment, who were able to give me some support. You know, my high school science teacher wrote a $125 check out of her own pocket so I could apply to college. I didn't have $125 to even apply to college. You know, right now we're talking as a society, you know, should college be free, right? Uh, could we just waive the application fee for some people? You know, that's sort of what I'm over here saying, which is that was a barrier for me. And she wrote that check, which allowed me to get in. You know, without that, my life becomes completely different. I don't mm -hmm. have a direction. I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to focus. And that's what happens. I, I become homeless. I turn to the streets, right? So that's talking about selling and using drugs. And we know that the dependency in kids in foster care is very high and addiction is very high in those kids in, from care. So you were able to get to college and, and, and you moved beyond foster care. And for a while you put it behind you. What is it that inspired you to return to these stories that you once vowed never to share? So I started working in criminal defense law offices and was outraged by the number of clients I started seeing coming through what was the revolving door of the criminal justice system. And I started asking why. Uh, my college degree is in interdisciplinary social science. I like to know why people do the things they do. And I started asking my clients about themselves. And I was appalled at the number who shared that they had spent time in care in all different ways. People who had been adopted from the system, people who had been reunified with bio parents and put back into the system, people who aged out of the system, everything in between, people who spent years in foster care, people who spent short time in foster care. But they all had that in common. And I started looking at these statistics we've been talking about and realized that there was a real problem in our nation and that we were talking about a lot of Band-Aid things. You know, get tough on crime was something we were talking about um, you know, the three strikes rule, all of these things. And I thought, these are just Band-Aid issues. We're not getting to the core result of where are these people coming from? Why do we have so many people committing crime, regardless of what the crime is? You know, you can look at death row inmates, and 80 to 85% of death row inmates are former foster youth. So I wanted to start bringing awareness to people that the foster care system, which is something that is not talked about a lot on the national level, which isn't talked a lot in local levels, if you ask local commissioners, 
most of them don't know what's going on in their own communities in that system. But that one system is responsible for a lot of the people who are ending up in a lot of our other social systems. And so regardless of your political views, there's a real need to focus on the foster care system and make changes if you want to see changes in those other systems. So and what that, you, what, yeah. yeah. So I just want to interject. What did you learn? You said there are these studies at Harvard and there's work that you've done and uh, you've, you have a lot of anecdotal evidence having uh, worked with defendants who had emerged from the foster care system. What were some of their uh, rationales for having engaged in criminal behavior? Right. Well, what we've learned is from things like the adverse childhood systems that people actually can go into trauma brain, right? That idea of fight, flight, freeze, which a lot of people are aware of. You know, you see, you encounter the bear. What do you do? Are you the person who fights the bear or are you the person who runs from the bear? You know, that when that happens to us, that seven second adrenaline release is really good for us. It saves us from harm. But what we found is that people who grow up in these traumatic situations are releasing that all the time, and it chemically Mm -hmm. is changing their brain. Their neurobiology is changing. And we have, and and this is sort of where Good Harbor was born, we had to come up with actual skills we could teach people because the way in which you communicate with someone who's in trauma brain is completely different than a person who can access all parts of their brain. Because when you're facing... Yeah, Can you provide an facing, example? Yeah, when you're facing that bear, right, you're not thinking yeah. about what your 10-year plan is and what you're going to have for dinner that night. You're just thinking, how do I survive? So you can't, you can't access that exact executive functioning. And so with some proper coaching, with some proper questioning, you can pull people when they're in that trauma brain to start activating the executive functioning of their brain to get them out of trauma brain. I sort of talk about it as a sledding hill, right? If you've been sledding and lots of people have been down the hill, it's really easy to access. You go really fast. It's super easy. You don't have to put much thought into it. But when you want to move your sled over to where nobody has sled before, it takes some work and some practice. And there's things that you can do for yourself. And then for those of us working with these people, which, by the way, I claim to be just about everybody who's experienced trauma, or when you're with somebody who's angry or upset, you can start asking questions in a specific way that can pull them out of that. So instead of actually asking direct yes-no questions, if you start asking more powerful questions, mm-hmm. how is that working for you, you can start to get them out of that and start thinking more long-term, right, the approach. So it's less focused on the current behavior that you see Um, I used this, for example, when I was just at the grocery store and there was a woman having a meltdown in front of me in the line because there wasn't enough peanut butter at the store. That's clearly not about peanut butter because people don't rationally act like that, right? So something else is going on. And I just walked up to her and said, you know, I'm really sorry that you're having a hard time, but this too shall pass. Is there anything that I could help you with? And she just looked at me and started to cry. And then the real story emerged. It wasn't about the peanut butter. It was about a husband who was on life support and a mother who had passed away and just having a bad day. And she just needed to share that with somebody. She needed somebody to recognize and see her. But most of us just can see that behavior and be like, I'm not getting involved in that and I'm going to walk away, right? And that's not my issue and my concern. But when we can start to ask those powerful questions and pull those people out of their anger and that current emotion they're having, 
we can move people forward in a really positive way. So Shenandoah, it sounds like what you're talking about is creating, uh, I guess, opportunities for individuals to share their own stories. And you're encouraging listeners to go out of their comfort zone at times um, and try to provide a more welcoming environment, which sounds like is exactly the sort of thing that you're trying to do with the Good Harbor Institute. Could you elaborate on what you're trying to accomplish up there in Silver City, Michigan? Yeah, we're actually traveling all over the nation now, providing training to organizations of all kinds from from private business entities who now are starting to understand that people with traumatic backgrounds show up in their business as employees, uh, especially businesses who tend to have high turnover positions. Uh, so doing training with them and their HR staff to nonprofit organizations who are working with youth in foster care and high-risk youth and families in general, you know, where they can start to actually take this information that we've had for a long time on science and on trauma in the brain, but convert it into actual skills, right? This idea that information is great, but now what do I do with that information? How do I change my day-to-day? So that's what we help organizations and businesses do is to actually give them skills so that they can change their organizations in all sorts of ways because trauma is affecting all of us. Now, in addition to the Good Harbor Institute, you're also, as you mentioned in the beginning of this episode, involved in a national effort to reform the child welfare system. Many individuals listening to this episode may have seen a movie or two uh, about an orphanage or read about Charles Mm -hmm. Dickens' Oliver Twist and maybe wondering, well, where are all the orphanages and what is child welfare? I don't think many people really are too familiar with the system. So what is wrong with the child welfare system and and what what is your action plan to try to reform it? So there's lots of things. Personally, I'm working on about four different things, two short-term, two long-term. One, um, you know, currently kids have basically two options, a foster home, which most people are familiar with that process, or a residential facility, which are more sort of group homes or detention facilities, which we're putting some kids in as well. Those are kind of the two choices, and I think we need to expand to have more options for kids. One of the things I'm a huge proponent of is boarding schools for foster youth uh, that's slightly different than orphanages, which have pretty much been phased out at this point, but they're actual boarding schools. And there are a couple examples, really good examples that are running in this country, the Hershey School in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and the Crosnor School in Crosnor, North Carolina are two great examples that have been operating for a really long time. Um, and something that I think we should be looking at as a nation to sort of duplicate and have more of, because for some kids, those are a great option. But there's other ways in which we can lend support. Currently, we have no matching system. This is where I think technology could really come in and help us. Currently, we look for empty beds to put kids in, and that doesn't mean we're necessarily matching the right kid to the right family. I think we need we could use technology's help with that a bit and getting kids into the right home so that we're moving them less. On average, kids will move more than five times during a foster care placement. That's a lot of moves. That often means losing friends and starting new schools as well. And then- Shannon, before you move to the third option, if I could just interject, you mentioned that in college you came from an interdisciplinary uh, studies program. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm thinking, you know, something that sounds very analogous to what you just mentioned is a second option, a matching system for matching the right kid to the right family is matching the right organ to the right organ recipient in, a, in an organ donor right. situation in healthcare. And around the country, you'll have this liver that's being rejected by that immune system and this blood, and it's very complicated. You need to get the right organ from the right place to the right body, and, and there's a lot of logistics. Have you ever thought about learning from the healthcare industry or other industries to uh, take those, those lessons and solutions and apply it to the foster care system? Absolutely, because we're even more limited, right? When you talk about the organ thing, which I think is a great example, but someone in California could get a liver from someone in Texas. Currently, we have all sorts of issues because each state runs their own child welfare system. And to have a child in foster care cross state lines can cause all kinds of issues. It can be difficult and complicated. Oftentimes, it doesn't happen. So even if they have biological family that lives in a different state, often who would be willing to take the child, oftentimes it's almost impossible to get that child there. And part, and one of the things I'm so excited about this collaboration we're doing on a national level is, can we start to look and address some of those issues? In my own case, my biological father had never been notified that I entered foster care. He lived in a different state than the state in which I entered foster care, was never notified, had no idea, and there was a whole complete entire family that might have been willing to take me in and thus save me for that. So that's definitely an issue that we need to address. And one of the major issues is, you know, where where do the federal rules and the state rules, what's that line, and can we start to blur that line a little more? That's incredible that your father was around and would have been able to help you avoid this whole situation had he been notified. Right. Never notified. And I actually found my father myself. I had never met my father in my life, my biological father. I found him after I turned 18 and had control to do that. And the sad part is, is it took me about 25 minutes. This was, by the way, before the Internet uh, to find my father. I placed a call to information in the state and city that I thought he lived, was able to track down my grandfather, who was then able to put me in touch with my father. So it really would have taken somebody about 25 to 30 minutes to find my father had anyone thought to do that. Well, I'm sorry uh, about the uh, circumstances of having been prevented from being reunified with your family, um, which surely would have uh, prevented a lot of pain and suffering. Um, but and, and returning to the topic of, of child welfare system, you mentioned that there were, I just want to get to those third and fourth points that you mentioned. So the first one, well, you need more boarding schools. The second one, you needed a matching system for the right kid, the right family. Mm-hmm. And I interrupted yeah. you before you said the third and fourth. Yeah, the third one is fostering whole families, right? So this idea of most of the time kids who enter care are coming from biological parents who were also in foster care themselves. Um, In fact, the recidivism rate is over 90%. So as a person who aged out of the system, I had a 90% chance of having my own children in care. And so a lot of times there's unresolved trauma within bio families. Now, this is not a solution where there is severe abuse happening, and that's not what I'm suggesting. But a lot of kids are removed because there's a drug addiction. Uh, Poverty plays a big role in this that that bio parents aren't able to provide. Uh, the basic necessities for children. And so there's this idea of what if we actually fostered the entire family together? 
and we helped heal some of the trauma of both the bio family and the kids so we could keep that family together. So there are some initiatives in some states and locations who are working on that. We haven't seen the outcomes of that, but but that's one thing. And then lastly, uh, and maybe most disturbing, is that we do not have continuing education for foster parents. Um, There are some requirements state to state and county by county, if you can imagine, where there are agencies that do require some continuing education, but it's not mandatory. There's no regulation on what that education should look like. And I say this often is there's a lot of foster parents with a heart to do this work, but they don't necessarily have the skills to work with a person who's had extreme trauma. And we have an opportunity as a society to provide some training and some skills around that to give them that support they need to work with those kids in their home on a daily basis. And currently, there is not much, and there is very little, if any, funding. So the foster parents who are seeking out additional training are doing so on their own dime and dollar to try to get that done and and piecemealing it together the best they can. So there's some work that needs to be done to support the current foster families that we have as well. So, Shenandoah, as we approach the end of this episode of Public Interest Podcast, I'd like to ask you a final question which is to reflect on why you found it so important to give back to others who face similar challenges that once faced you and to try to reform this system and what at the end of your career do you hope to have accomplished through those efforts? I hope that we haven't only reformed the system. I hope that we've completely reimagined it. Uh, A friend of mine says often that the foster care system isn't broken, it's shattered. And when a glass is shattered, you cannot just fix it and put it back together, but you have to just start over. And I think that's what's really needed. I hope at the end of my career, at the end of my life, that we have seen a drastic decrease in the number of kids needing to even come into foster care. And I hope that for the kids that still have to come into foster care, that we have made it so they have the same opportunities as kids who get to be raised in traditional families and that the outcomes for them are much brighter uh, than they currently are. And that has been Shenandoah Shafalo, the author of A Garbage Bag Suitcase, a memoir, the story of a woman's turbulent childhood about navigating the foster care system. Shen is a foster care advocate and the co-owner of the Good Harbor Institute in Michigan, who speaks about the need for uh, children um, in, in, in the foster care system to have stability, um, who are willing to go to any lengths to find a refuge. For Shenandoah, it was, it was school, which was um, a refuge. She speaks about the, the biological implications of the trauma that these children experience um, uh, and how they have a, an almost an omnipresent fight or flight uh, response that um, is completely triggered and it prevents them from thinking, uh, from engaging in long-term planning, like for instance, investing in their education when they're always focused on their lower level uh, of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For, so for Shannon Doa, uh, from being an advocate to being an educator, um, to being a storyteller, she's seeking to advance the public interest uh, by taking a shattered system, as she calls it, and trying to start over. And she has a four-point action plan, and she's working on a national coalition to really try to turn things around for children 
born into unfortunate circumstances. So, Shenandoah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Jordan. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.